I'm Henry Bean, and you're listening to the World is Wrong podcast. Oh, Frank, you celebrated Frank? Oh, yeah. Oh, do I love that movie. Isn't it so good? Uh, it's just, that's a great movie. And and his next movie, I thought, was at least as great. Room? The, uh, the Room. I thought Room, and, uh, Room and, and, and Frank were two movies with totally happy endings that I thought were completely earned. I was thrilled by both of them. I know a lot of people don't like Room as much, but the world is wrong about that. <laughs> We're here to tell you how the world is wrong. The world is wrong about the believer. Dr. Lieber, welcome to The World is Wrong, an extremely positive podcast where we celebrate films and film artists the world is wrong about. My name is Andras Jones, and I am one of your hosts. And my name is Brian Connolly, and I'm one of your hosts. But not today, sadly. Well, you're still the host. We have a guest. You're <laughs> Yeah. You're basically here to welcome our guest and then take off because you got bigger things to do than hang out at our little party. But then you come back to the end. We're talking with the director of this film, The Believer, Henry Bean. We're also going to be talking with the producer, Christopher Roberts, uh, in a sort of a part two episode that's going to be released on the same day. So, uh, yeah, we're going to be talking about The Believer here. I, we're going to get into it with you a little bit at the end, Brian, but is there anything yeah. you want to tell people before we uh, dive into this? Just definitely watch the movie. Uh, when I first saw this movie, I didn't really know anything about it. I saw it because of you. You lent me your copy at the time, and you said, you should watch this movie. And this is before I knew who Ryan Gosling was or anything. And, you know, you can hear the plot you know, of the movie and kind of have an idea but what you get, I think, is very different, as you will understand when you hear this interview as well. But yeah, I think definitely seek it out and watch it. And the plot simply is, it's a true story about a Jewish Nazi from New York who gets outed by the New York Times and kills himself. And it's a comedy. <laughs> there might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. There might be spoilers. Hey, Guy Danielson. You. You look different yeah. at that meeting. Well, you know. So the other night, you said that you thought the, uh, the modern world was a Jewish disease. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Uh, in the movement, this racialist movement, we believe there's a hierarchy of races, you know. Whites at the top, blacks at the bottom, Asians, Arabs, Latins, somewhere in between. Why are you writing this down if you're recording it? Uh, it helps me concentrate. Uh, Danny, what about the Jews? Jews? Judaism? It's like a sickness. How is Judaism a sickness? Take sexuality. Sexuality? Yeah. What do you mean? You ever fuck a Jewish girl? What? You ever fuck one? Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I mean I've, I've, I've been out with a Jew. There you go. What did you notice? Like what? Jewish girls love to give head. <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, sure, yeah. I don't know, is that right? And Jewish men love to get it. Everybody likes to get it? Yes, it's very pleasurable, but Jews are obsessed with it. You wanna know why? Yes, why? Because a Jew's essentially female. 
female. Yeah. Real men, white, Christian men, we fuck a woman, we make her come with our cocks. But a Jew doesn't like to penetrate and thrust. He can't assert himself in that way, so he resorts to these perversions. Oral well, sex is technically a perversion, you know that, right? Yeah. So that's why after a woman's been with a Jewish man, she's ruined. She never wants to be with a normal partner again. So the Jew's a better lover. Well, he's not better. That's not what I said. I said he gives pleasure. That's actually a weakness. All right, so it's not that the, uh, the Jew runs the media or that he owns all the banks. It's that they're Look, sexually no, no. corrupt. The Jews clearly control the media and the banks, investment banks, not the commercial ones. But the point is, they carry out in those realms the exact same principles that they display in sexuality. They undermine traditional life, and they deracinate society. Deracinate. Tear out the roots. A real people derives its genius from the land, from the sun, from the sea, from the soil, you know? This is how they know themselves. But, like, Jews don't even have soil. Yes, Israel. Yeah. Those aren't Jews. Of course they're Jews. Notice the Israelis. It's a fundamentally secular society. They no longer need Judaism because they have soil. Because the real Jew is a wanderer. He's a nomad. He's got no roots and no attachments, so he universalizes everything. He can't hammer a nail or plow a field. All he can do is buy and sell and invest capital and manipulate markets, and, you know, it's like all mental. He takes a life of a people that's rooted in soil, and then he turns it into this cosmopolitan culture based on books and numbers and ideas, and, you know, this is his strength. You can take the greatest Jewish minds ever. Marx, Freud, Einstein, what have they given us? Communism, infantile sexuality, and the atom bomb. In the mere three centuries, it's taken these people to emerge from the ghettos of Europe. They've ripped us out of a world of order and reason. They've thrown us into a chaos of class warfare, irrational urges, relativity, into a world where now the very existence of matter and meaning is in question. Why? Because it's the deepest impulse of a Jewish soul to pull at the very fabric of life till there's nothing left but a thread. They want nothing but nothingness. Nothingness without end. Wow. Danny, this is great. You're incredibly articulate. But one thing. How can you believe all of this when, when you're a Jew yourself? Excuse me? Do you know a, a rabbi, Stanley Nadelman? He was at the congregation Ohev Zedek. Who? How would I know him? He said you were bar mitzvahed there in March of 1988. He said, and you believe that? And you call yourself a real reporter? Okay, so you're, you're saying that that's not true. Do I look Jewish to you? Look at this. Were you ever bar mitzvahed anywhere else? Do you have any idea who you're fucking with here? No. Who am I fucking with here? Not a... Not a what? Fuck you. Why would Nadelman lie to me? To discredit me. Yeah. I know who they are. I already explained this to you, guy. These people can say and do anything, and they will. It's all narrative. Are you going to put what he said in your paper? Well, give me a reason not to. Because it's slander. Because it's reckless disregard. Because I'm going to sue your fucking Jew paper, that's why. So you're denying that what he said is true? Yes or no? 
all right, you know, take it easy. Hey. Look at me, guy. Oh, no, you can't even look at me now, right? Oh, God, please. You put that in the New York Times, guy. And I'm gonna kill myself. The Believer from 2001 was the first lead role in a film from a young Ryan Gosling playing a Jewish skinhead in New York City, based upon a true story of Daniel Burros, as reported by New York Times reporter McClandish Phillips. The film follows Gosling's Daniel Ballant as he stalks and beats a Jewish student, attends right-wing fascist meetings led by Billy Zane and Teresa Russell, engages in a BDSM relationship with a fellow fascist acolyte, and talks a lot about killing Jews. And yet, there is something about the way Daniel goes about being a Nazi that is very Jewish. It is this paradox at the heart of the believer that makes it both an uncomfortable and a potentially hilarious take on a subject that few films are willing to touch, the complexity of anti-Semitism. It's not hard to understand why a film like this is one the world is going to be wrong about, but with the cast of great young actors at the beginning of their careers, including Garrett Dillahunt, Elizabeth Reeser, and A.D. Miles, and the continued confusion about anti-Semitism and its relationship to right and left-wing political movements, it seems like something more people should see and try and get their minds around. I'm looking forward to discussing The Believer with its director, Henry Bean, and here he is. Welcome to The World is Wrong, Henry. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Happy and to be here. And you come here through uh, the introduction of my old high school chum, Chris Roberts, Christopher Roberts, who is the producer right. on this film. Right. That's true. He was. And he was a great producer, an indispensable person, a person about whom what I remember the best about Chris is when something went wrong. I said to him at one point, why didn't you tell me this was a problem? He said, because we have 100 problems a day and most of them go away and I don't have to tell you about them. And I thought, what a sensible answer that was. Please don't tell me about That's anything a great I producer. That's a great producer. And let me just yeah, tell you absolutely. my quick, my introduction to The Believer is that I was visiting Chris in New York in like probably 2000, 2001. I'm not exactly sure when you were shooting this, but you were in the middle of shooting. And, and right, 2000. Chris, uh, knowing that I was a, uh, a young starving artist and always looking for free stuff was like, Hey, we have some, we have a bunch of t-shirts that we're not using from, from this film. Do you want to, <laughs> do you want to see if you want any of them? I was like, sure. You know, none of them have swastikas on them. Right. And he's like, no, no, no. They're just like normal, normal t-shirts. And those became some of my favorite t-shirts for like five years. It's like really? green ones, brown ones. There was nothing, there was nothing particular. They're just really well-made huh. t-shirts. Huh. At any rate. <laughs> I have no memory of these t-shirts. It was okay, another one of the problems great. you didn't need to know. <laughs> I, sh I should have gotten, I should have, no, I should have gotten yeah. myself a couple. So, and then, but that's not why I love the film. Then I saw the film and was just, uh, I related to it in ways that I could never have imagined that I would relate to it. And 
it's odd because as much as I enjoyed the film and have talked with people about it since, it's also something that has been scary to revisit. And I don't, and obviously I know kind of why, but I also am confused as to, like my own experience of the film is that it's not a, a, a uh, an ugly or a, a hurtful film, but it still makes me a little bit afraid to step into it because I'm afraid that I'll deal with the ugliness or the hurt that is associated with it. And that brings me to my question for you, my first question for you about this film, which is how do you think the world is wrong about this film? Well, uh, the only thing I can think that's wrong about it, the world being wrong about it, is they haven't watched it enough. Um, It's not that I think the film has been misunderstood, though at times it has been. Um, but I, I'm not, it wasn't, hmm. film wasn't made to be understood a certain way. The film was made out of a certain impulse and the sense of having something to say, a dangerous thing for anybody to have. But I had that and, and, and I relatively satisfied with the way it got said. I, there are lots of things I would make better about the film, but the way it conveys its essential, or my sense, I guess, really, of, its, of, of the, my, my initial impulse is pretty good. So when people like it or don't like it or um, misunderstand it according to what I think its meaning is, I, that doesn't bother me. I, I don't want people to understand. I want people to, you know, you want people to encounter something you do in their own terms. And it's inevitably going to be in their own terms. And if those terms are different from yours, um, too bad or, 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 or actually good. It's, it, it makes the thing a living thing, which everybody has their own response to. The one, the one complaint, the one thing I think that was wrong was the film didn't get, sh- post Sundance, the, thi- the film didn't get shown the way it should have. It should have shown as a, an art house film um, without that release initially on Showtime. And, and the reason that happened is an interesting story. Uh, the film came out of Sundance with a lot of uh, praise and excitement and Paramount Focus, Paramount Indie, whatever the Paramount version of, uh, you know, the, the indie label at Paramount, they were interested in distributing it. And they went to the Simon Wiesenthal Center, the uh, Museum of Tolerance, who had, the, the leader of whom, uh, Rabbi Marvin Heyer, had kind of gotten himself into a position of being Hollywood Pope on matters Jewish. And they said, well, let's see the film. We haven't seen it. And I took it over there. I took over a, a video of it. And the minute I walked into the room of that place and saw the people who were going to be seeing it, I thought, uh-oh, this is the wrong thing. I shouldn't be here. I should not be showing these people. But it, I was committed, and I didn't... I didn't uh, pull back, which is, you know, all sorts of Jewish people, Jewish organizations, synagogues, B'nai B'rith, stuff like that, would see it later and think, oh, I get this. This is great. But these guys, for whatever reason, I knew weren't going to like it. And there were lots of reasons why they didn't like it, some having to do with sexual matters. And I don't want to get into that. Oh, maybe we should get into that. You know, they didn't like hearing that women, Jewish women like to have or yeah. like to give oral sex. You know, I thought that was a tribute to Jewish women, but they thought it was a, a negative. You're channeling Lenny Bruce there. I think you just I think you just channeled Lenny Bruce a bit. That's fantastic. Well, the bust. What I got arrested for in San Francisco. San Francisco, I got arrested for uh, 
What is that? We can hear that, Daddy. Um, I'm not going to repeat the word because I want to finish the gig here tonight. It's, uh, uh, they said it was vernacular for a favorite homosexual practice, a ten-letter word. Uh, it's really chic. That's two four-letter words in a preposition. I can't, uh, I wish I could tell you the word. It uh, starts with a C. Well, you know what the word is. Now, it's weird how they manifested that word as homosexual. Because I don't. That relates to any contemporary chick I know or would know or would love or would marry, you know. One, one, of, my, one of my great influences. Um, but what really got me was when I, when I they, of course, they said, we don't like this film, and Paramount and Paramount Classics, that's what it was. Paramount Classics decided they didn't want to distribute it. And with that, the, the kibosh was on the thing for um, theatrical and it was going to go to Showtime. And subsequently, I heard, and I felt like, well, they really didn't understand. Here's how the film was wrong. The film was wrong in thinking this film was not respectful mm -hmm. of Judaism, whereas I think it was deeply respectful. But this got crystallized in a little incident that when I called those guys up and said, it wasn't Marvin Heyer, it was a guy named, um, I can't remember his name, Abraham something or something Abraham. He didn't like it. And he said, one of the things you did was you desecrated a Torah. That is, what, by that he meant, there's a scene when they're in the synagogue where they drop the Torah and the, 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 it rolls across the floor, yeah. opening up the, 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 the text. And I said to him, well, you know, when we were going to do that scene, we were very careful because we understood the risks entailed. And, and what we did was we took the, 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 the scroll, the wooden pieces that are the scroll called the eight seam, the trees, and we got eight seam that had, been, had not yet been blessed. And we got a, two or three panels of Torah text, the, the two or three panels of Torah text that did not contain the name of God. And we reproduced them endlessly. And that was what we dropped. So we were really careful not to desecrate a Torah or anything that might be desecratable. And I said, oh, yeah, I didn't know that. And I thought they didn't know it. There was some way in which this film, in its impudence, you know, in its, you know, I'm going to provoke you, my doing, failed to convey to certain people the respect it had for its subject. Um, and, and I think the part of the Jewish community or the part of the non-Jewish community that thought this was offensive and, and, and didn't see that respectfulness, well, they were wrong, but maybe that wrongness is my fault. Maybe it's, I didn't indicate clearly enough how much this was, in, as, I, as I sometimes think of it as a, a poem, a love poem to Judaism. Um, I, I felt it. I totally felt it. But then I'm a perverse and confused Jew myself. So maybe if I were uh, a more observant Jew, I might take it in a different way. You know, there were observant, there was this one particular observant Jew who's in the film, and it was incredibly important in making the film, a guy named Judah Lazarus. Yes, the director um, of Kabbalah Me, and he really, I wanted to ask you about him because right. he's in the film so little, but he has such a grounded charisma in that film. He is a very yeah. charismatic performer, and I had originally, when the film, the film began as a short, that really not even a short because it wasn't coherent. It was a bunch of scenes that I I, I made, and Judah played the the role that that Ryan plays in the feature, and Judah was just magnificent. Um, he wasn't enough of an actor. He wasn't. He didn't. He didn't have certain chops that were necessary to make the thing. And God knows we didn't oh. go wrong in our actors. Yeah. Ryan couldn't have done better than Ryan, but Judah has something very intense. And Judah was in. Judah's only on screen a little bit, but he's. 
he's behind the camera a lot. And, and um, the thing that he did, many things he did, but one of them was that when Ryan came to New York to prepare for the film, I basically said to him, you hang out with Judah. And Ryan hung out with Judah and Judah was very gracious and accepting. But Ryan, who's just a fantastic mimic, uh, picked up mannerisms, verbal and, 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 and corporal mannerisms from, from, from Judah. And they're there. And if you know Judah, you can see Ryan in the film doing Judah. And not only that, but when you see Ryan in his next film, Murder by Numbers, he's still <laughs> doing a little bit of Judah because Judah is an incredibly charismatic guy. Um, and, and, and Judah was a tremendous source for so many things on the film. It really, in, in, in a deep way, my understanding of the character, there were things I didn't know about the character I'd written that Judah explained to me quite explicitly and changed the way the thing was done. So, so I don't think it's impossible for a serious religious, well, Judah wasn't really so serious, religious, seriously religious at the time, but he is now. Um, but he had been. He'd grown up in an orthodox world. I, I think the film is very, very respectful, even adoring of not only the Jewish people, but even more of Judaism as a religion. And if the world's wrong about it in any way, it's in failing to see that. But I, I, my, the, 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 the movie had a greater fate and a greater existence than I had ever imagined it would have. So how, how do you mean it had a greater, like you really just thought it was going to be, I thought that I thought this thing was good. Nothing was going to come of it. I thought it was going to be this crazy thing. I did. I spent a lot of money, my own money out of pocket money on that film. Um, but I just had to do it. You know, it was one of those things where I, I, I'd gone a certain distance and I had to keep going. And so, you know, I, I actually got a rewrite job that I managed to take the pre-tax dollars from my rewrite job and put them into the movie and not pay the taxes until I got the money back from the movie. I went all the way with the thing, but I didn't really believe, or maybe I was afraid to believe, that something good would come of it. And I, and I think if we hadn't gotten Ryan, I'm not sure anything would have come of it at all. There were other people who there was pressure to cast and, for obvious reasons, I'm not going to mention. I mean, them. Jewish actors, um, were you and, and Jewish mm -hmm. actors and non-Jewish actors, um, and and I do honestly feel, and they're and very very good actors, really excellent people, but I honestly feel that if I had chosen any one of them, the thing wouldn't have worked, and uh, it would have gone nowhere, and and so I I never imagined. Although the minute I saw Ryan, I said, "This is the guy I want." But I never imagined that I would find it. He's the last. I, I, I auditioned 100 people. He was the 99th person I auditioned. And uh, I, I was in despair because I thought, well, there's somebody. I'll pick somebody here. But there's nobody I really want. There's nobody mm -hmm. who's exciting to me. And then this guy walked in and did this thing. And it wasn't so much that I thought, this is it. I didn't have that feeling. I had the feeling of this is something I've never seen before. This is so different. It's new. Everything that he's been saying, you know, when you do these auditions, you do the same scenes over and over again. So I'd heard these scenes a hundred times. And suddenly in comes this guy, and I was bored with him. And in comes this guy who does the scenes, and I'd never heard them before. They were brand new to me. And interestingly, when I watched the videos, you know, you videotape these things. When I watched the videos, his line readings, even though I now had heard them, continued to surprise me. There was something so original about him that it wasn't a matter of this is right, but it's like, this is interesting. This is, this is I want to see more of this. 
Um, I've been looking for a particular thing, and instead I found something else. I, I think that's often the way. You know, you, you think you know what you want, but you don't really know. And then you get something you think, oh, this is what I want. Well, that leads me to two questions. I want to talk about the casting process. But first, I just want to talk about having worked with Ryan Gosling at that point in his career. Because what you're describing, I feel like, is true of Ryan Gosling as an actor to this day. There is just something... Yeah slightly different about him that is that is kind of undefinable and i guess that you know to some degree you might call that star quality but i think it goes beyond that and i'm curious for you i'm always interested in talking to people who work with people early in their careers and then have this view of Mm -hmm. them as they go on and certainly obviously ryan gosling is a major movie star actor important person in film and you have watched that trajectory from the jump. Is Do you have any particular... Yeah. Do you feel like that has given you any particular insight into him as an actor over the years? Well, I, as you said, I saw him when he was young. He was 19 years old when he made the film. And he was... Um, he was more open than... You know, a young person is usually... was often more open than an older person. And, and so I got stories about his life and I got the emotion behind those stories his upbringing his being on the Mickey Mouse Club you know his loneliness his relation to other people that fed my understanding of what he did and how he did it and his his the ways in which his forcefulness was on top of tenderness and the way in which he could The way in which even when he was doing something incredibly cruel, you could feel the vulnerability that generated. And you pick mm-hmm. the first scene or almost the first scene of the movie when he's beating up Peter Meadows. When he's beating up the kid, the yeshiva booker on the, from the train, he, he conveys without pulling punches on his sadism. He conveys how much this guy's passivity wounds him, mm-hmm. his character, Danny Burroughs. That that he want, that he's that, that in some sense you he knows he's beating up himself. He knows this is attacking the schmuck inside him, and and he he's able to convey that complexity. Well, that was there when he was nineteen. I'll tell you a story about as I tell this story all the time because it's so amazing. You know the final shot yeah. he's going up the stairs and he disappears and you hear his footsteps. Well, in fact. The stairs did not go up for flight after flight. The stairs went up one flight after that. But so what Ryan did was he went up there and, as he said, I faded my, I, you know, he said, I went up there and he kept walking to give you the sense that it was going on forever, even though it wasn't really going on forever. But when he finished the first take, he said, you know what I forgot to do? I forgot to fade the footsteps as if I was getting farther away. Mm. So this is a 19-year-old kid who's thinking about that. It's, Amazing. He, he's, he was, you know, you talk about athletes, you feel that they say about athletes, certain athletes, they see the whole field or they see the whole court. But Ryan saw the whole movie. Ryan, Ryan was like a young genius athlete who saw everything and was thinking about everything. It wasn't like he was busy scouring things. He just had a vision. He had a sense of vision that understood. Um, it's, it was, you know, he wasn't just thinking about his role. He was thinking about the whole thing. Yeah. 
And, and uh, you know, he and Judah, who became pals, the day that, the day that we shot the young versions of them and the yeshiva, you know, with their, their 12, 13-year-old counterparts, they were there. And they were there working with those kids to make their roles as good as they could be. And I thought they were really, I thought that was a really effective scene. In, in, He's in not the only that. amazing actor you got in this film. It's whoever, who did the casting for this? A woman named uh, Adrian Stern. She, I, I want to send um, her a thank you note because, uh, damn, this cast is, <laughs> especially now, I mean, when I watched it, I didn't know where all these people were going to go. Right. Me, me either. Garrett, be- Barrett, Garrett became big. AD became big. Uh, um, Elizabeth Reeser. I just watched. I just watched her Elizabeth last Reeser. night in uh, this a new American Crime Story, the the one about huh. Monica huh. Lewinsky, and the and she's got huh. such. I mean, all of these. I mean, Garrett Dillahunt, Obviously, he's. I think he's one of them. Was one of the more interesting actors on TV sort of right out of that he shows up in deadwood and justified and damages yeah, 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 yeah. and all these great movies right, such an right. intense intense actor it's funny because when i first watched the film right. obviously you hate him and then you come back to it and you're watching it and you're like oh i still hate that character but i love that guy <laughs> garrett garrett has a some of what we're talking about with ryan he has a capacity to be a son of a bitch and, and yet to make you feel the depths of himself. Uh, and I, and I don't know, you know, who can say what that is in an actor, but, but he can do that. I also think, uh, Glenn Fitzgerald's great. I, I always loved him and I knew him before the movie. Uh, I didn't know him personally, but I knew his work. Um, Garrett, I met kind of through auditions. Um, so there were a lot of people who were great. And, and you know, I, I, this is going to sound self-serving, but I think they like being in a movie where mm-hmm. they know it's about something. And, and they're not, you know, people are so, actors who are ambitious in an artistic sense, are so hungry for meaningful work. And they're so, and you can get, you can get really good actors to consider being in small films just because they want to get a chance to do something. It's funny because several months ago I interviewed Steven Shainberg. We were talking about the film Fur. Oh yeah, I know. I and know yeah. he was saying that these days, it's almost exactly the opposite, that actors are generally frightened of appearing in things where they're not going to be perceived as heroic. And maybe that's... Oh, that's... So a, that, I, I, uh, and, uh. and he was talking about how that has changed significantly. So I'm just curious, do you feel like... Do you have any comment on that? I haven't made a movie since Noise in, what, 2006, I think I made. Yeah, Noise. I shot that in 2006. So I, 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 haven't, I haven't seen this change. Um, if people are, they were, when I was casting Noise, people were falling all over themselves. People, big names were falling all over themselves to be involved in something that they perceived as weird and interesting. And, and you could feel a hunger. They, some of these people were doing big shows and they just, they basically they didn't say it because they didn't want to trash their, their sugar daddy, but they would say, that's what I have to do. I really yeah. want to do something else. So maybe I, it's not a matter of how you're, you're talking, the, the thing Steve says is a little bit um, how they appear themselves. I'm thinking about more what the right. material's like. Uh, gosh, they don't want to be, they don't, they, they don't want to be, they, they don't want to be less than heroic. Well, they're idiots. But, <laughs> so, 
there is one other cast member that I am curious about. I actually I didn't realize this until I looked was doing my research for this on uh, IMDb. I was looking and I saw that Natasha Leggero is an uncredited waitress in a scene, and I scoured this film and I can't find her. Uh, I'm a I'm a fan of her work as a comedian. She's actually been on another podcast that I host called the Radio Eight Ball Show, and I'm just curious. Where does she show up in this film? You're embarrassing me because I, unfortunately, I have my IMDb open here, and I'm looking up Natasha Leggero, and there she is. I don't remember where she shows up in the film. Is it possible? Well, there, there are basically, let's see, the restaurant scenes. There's the scene where Danny is interviewed by Mm -hmm. by the reporter, and there's the scene in the. like a diner where the skinheads try and give shit to the waiter, Evan, Evan Moss Backrock, and and maybe there's maybe she's the waitress there. If she's a waitress. Yeah, those are yeah. The two I was I, I was looking. Imagine. Well, who knows? I'll have to. I you I'll have to reach out to to Natasha's people and see if I can get a comment on this. But uh, we won't we won't we okay. won't okay. belabor this too much on a on an uncredited waitress role. Yeah. But it was just it was just kind of cool to see. Right. I always I I'm a big fan of. I don't know what I, I consider them like baby pictures, like films where people show up before we know who they are. You know, one of the banes of the existence uh, of my existence as a director, it's small, but it's annoying, is the handling of extras. If Natasha's uncredited, maybe she was an extra and she came in as an extra, not as an actress. I mean, she came in as SAG extras and not regular SAG. Um, and there are all sorts of rules about how much you're allowed to talk to them. And if you start actually saying, here's what I want you to do and here's what I want you to think about, they're going to start to ask for a bump up to regular SAG and then you're going to have to pay more money and the budget doesn't allow it. So even though you want to get the best out of your extras in a small and a low budget film with a very constrained budget, you're not free to do that. So maybe that's why I didn't, I I don't remember any option. That's fine. Sorry, That's Natasha. Fine. Uh, I'm she's she's doing just fine for herself. She's 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 doing great. Yeah, I'm glad to hear. So that. let's get into your uh, your inspiration for this film because it's based upon a true story. But the true story took place in the '60s, right. and this is definitely supposed right. to be taking place modern day, as of 2001, is what it feels like. Yes. So That's can right. you talk about? What about that particular story, the story of uh, Daniel? That story, that story, the story of Danny Burroughs, um, as told famously by uh, McClandish Phillips in the Times and as then covered in a book by A.M. Rosenthal and Arthur Gelb called, I think, One More Victim or One Last Victim or something like that, um, meaning One More Victim of Hitler. Uh, that was a story brought to my attention by the writer, you probably know him, Mark Jacobson, who's a longtime journalist in New York and mm-hmm. a screenwriter and a novelist. Um, and, and Mark and I talked about it for years, about doing a movie about that. Um, and we never did anything about it. But in the course of that time, um, I got more interested in the religion as we both were just completely secular Jews. But I got, I married a, somebody who knew that world. And I got interested in it and I began to see the thing in different terms. And when it came time to do it, um, we were in different places. But the story of Burroughs 
Well, you know it. It's the story of a kid. 1965, the New York Times gets a tip that a kid has been arrested at a KKK demonstration. At a, remember the mm-hmm. White Castles? There were the hamburger, yeah. cheap hamburger joints. Well, he got he got arrested at a White Castle in the Bronx in a KKK demonstration. They, the New York Times got a tip that the guy was a Jew. And they put Phillips on the case. McClendish Phillips was not only Jen, the consensus best writer on the Times' city desk, but he was an interesting person in his own right in that he was an evangelical Christian minister. And he, he just did both. He spent a lot of time in, in doing Christian missionary work within the city, I guess. But he was a first-rate reporter. And he went out there and he interviewed Burroughs in a scene that I've ima- reimagined in the movie, but from stuff, from the general topics that uh, i mean i made it funnier i'm sure than it was and, and, and but but in general he's drawing burrows out on burrows's anti-semitic theories and then at this certain point he says to wilson how can you believe this if you're a jew and burrows says i'm not a jew and philip says i talked to rabbi so-and-so at this synagogue in the queen in queens and he said he he bar mitzvahed you there burrows says you print that in the new york times i'll kill myself they printed it in the Times, and Burroughs killed himself within hours after the paper hit the street. This is the description in the one more victim of that suicide is particularly horrific. And, and, and what's horrific about it is that Burroughs is, is living, I think it's in Allentown, Pennsylvania, somewhere up there in that area of the country. And he goes down to the newsstand. He sees the paper. He sees, he buys the paper. He has, sees this article about himself. He comes back to what they called the Nazi barracks, the rented house where they were all living. And he's distraught. And all the guys in the, in the house say to him, what's the matter, Danny? And he says, the New York Times says I'm a Jew. And they all go, oh, okay, but let's talk about this. And, and the beauty of this is he, they knew. And why did they know? Well, it's in the book. They knew because he was... And this is the essence of what drew me to the story. The essence of what drew me to the story was that Burroughs, during all this time, he was a member of the American Nazi Party and a high, you know, a rising young finger, figure because he's a, he's a smart, organized, passionate guy, not just, a, not just a loser like the rest of them. He's a loser, but he's also something else. He's hiding this thing and he's giving it away. By which I mean he's pretending he hates, he hates Jews more than anybody else does, mm-hmm. which is the first giveaway. And second, he's doing things like bringing knishes back to the Nazi headquarters and saying, you, you got to eat this, Jew, this good Jew food and hang out with women who the Nazis say were obviously Jews. And doing things like uh, what I have him do is, is, is studying Jew, the Jewish religion by way of sharpening his hatred. Well, the idea of somebody who's hiding something and giving it away yeah. is just irresistible for me. I thought this is this is this is the this this to me. It was when I it was in reading that that I said I, I'm, I have to write this thing. And this is long back. This is back when Mark and I were talking about it. But it was the it was the essence of it for me. Um, and the pathos of him killing himself. It 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 has it has in the real story. It's just pathos. He's a loser. He's an unattractive, unappealing person with, with a certain amount of intelligence and a certain amount of perversity. But he's a loser. I just didn't want to make a movie mm-hmm. about a loser. I wanted to make a movie about somebody where that passion for 
self-contradiction, let's say, was more joined. It was more, and, and, and so in a way, what I took was, I took Danny Burroughs's interest in Canisius and hang out with Jewish women and stuff, and I built it into a more fundamental contradiction, which is, this is a guy who wants to be a, wants to be a Nazi, and he wants to be a rabbi. We got married against my parents' wishes. We were married in Long Island, in New York. We were married by a reform rabbi in Long Island. <laughs> A very reform rabbi. A Nazi. First, he's just a Nazi, but the Nazi world is kind of boring. Then he wants to be a rabbi, but he doesn't just want to be a rabbi because rabbis are nebbishes. He wants to be a Nazi and a rabbi. Only the two together would possibly satisfy him. And while it, it is obviously an impossibility to be both a Nazi and a rabbi, there's an interval of his life when he's going back and forth between trying to sell the Nazis on Judaism and trying to sell the, the Jews on, <laughs> on Nazism. He's trying to do both at the same time. And in that interval, he is a, he's a whole person. He's able to be his whole self. And, and as I say, it's, it's not sustainable. One, one, once, as soon as one side finds out about the other, the gig is up. But until, and it destroys him. But until then, he's able to go on living. Well, I, I find this very universal. Um, I, I think that we both, we all want, and I, I, you know, I think maybe the most, one of the most awkward things in the movie, and yet something I can't do without because it says so clearly what I want to say, is that sequence when he pictures himself back in the, during the war, where he's playing the father and he's playing the son and he's playing the Nazi and he's playing every part. It's only playing every part that is really satisfying to us. And if we, end up having to play just one part and being on this side or that side. Well, we'll play it because that's how we know how to live, but it's, we're frustrated by that. There's, there's so many good um, and important yeah. points in this movie that you're touching on here. It's, yeah, that, that idea yeah. of that in order to, in order to be a truly spiritual person, you have to accept everything. Yeah, I get that. I never put it that way, but that's that sounds right. Uh, that sound that sounds like what you have to do, and it's impossible, and yeah. it has to be done. And 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 what I love about him is that he's trying to do it. He's he's trying to resolve the contradictions, even though the contradictions they're unresolvable, destroyed. and yet he is um, yes, and, he is con he's continuing to try, yeah. which I think is why that the scenes that you go back to with the kid in shul asking these really difficult questions and getting kicked mm -hmm. out of class mm -hmm. for it mm -hmm. is right. I think that right. I mean, I suppose the movie could potentially work without that, but I can't imagine it. Because I feel like that is really the core. And we're told as Jews that what we do, like that, that we're encouraged to ask questions, but still some questions you can't ask. And that's. You're encouraged to ask questions. And then when you ask the good ones, they, yeah, don't, want to, yeah. they don't want to listen. Back to Lenny Bruce. When I was, um, when I was working on that scene with the, where he's asking the kids, asking those questions of the teacher in school, I had two people who'd gone to yeshiva. I had Judah who said, I'm making the teacher less, too hard-ass, much more hard-ass than he would really be. And I had my wife who said, the teacher's not nearly hard-ass enough. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, but I do think that, and it's best Judaism, you know, 
I don't know. I don't know thing one or thing two about the Talmud. But the little bit of Talmud, the one, the one lesson in Talmud I had was somebody had a. There was a. There was a question. If you if you forget to say the Shema, one of the times during the day, do you get to, do you say it twice later on to make up for the time you missed? And there are like fifteen pages of argument back and forth between this rabbi and that rabbi and everything. And in the end, there's a decision. The decision is, you, you don't say it a second time. But but the decision is just the last line of the of the that section. And the 14 or 15 pages are all given. All the positions, the multiple positions are more important than the conclusion. Um, the questions are more important than the answer. The question, because, you know, the answer ends things. The questions keep things going. Um, and you want to keep things going. You, 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 then it's alive. Uh, and, and, so, and so that kind of stuff, those kind of hard questions that, that the young Danny is asking there, that's real mm-hmm. Judaism to me. The questions you can't answer. Well, there's a, there's, a, there's, there's a lot of commentary that says Abraham actually did sacrifice Isaac, and then Isaac was brought back to life. The father actually did kill the son. That, that you know, uh, as it were, minority report, that, that, you know, secondary case, that exists as part of the commentary on that famous story. They don't exclude that. There whole bo- there's a whole book I, I know on that on that question and the one the idea that he killed him. So that's included. The negative is included with the positive in in this search for, you know, an approximation of wholeness. You know, it's, and that's that's why I say it's really a tribute to the religion. The, the movie is a phylos. So when I reached out to you about this to to talk about to talk about talking about this, you. Yeah. said that you consider this film to be a comedy and i <laughs> i get it i do i i get it but i also want to hear you talk about how it's a comedy okay let me let me it, it, it's a comedy in that the very you say to people this is a story about a jewish nazi yeah for a long time the title of the movie was the jewish nazi and the believer was simply some friend of mine invented that because we, you know, you go out to rent locations and they say, what's the name of the movie? <laughs> the you don't Nazi. want to say it's the Jewish Nazi because they right. might not want to rent to you. Um, but when you say the Jewish Nazi, everyone laughs or they at least smile. There's something funny about that. There's something funny about the idea, fundamentally funny, about a Jew who wants to be a Nazi. I mean, yes, they have self-hatred involved in it, but it's also funny. Contradiction like that is funny. And, and so... That and and to me, when he the more he tries to make himself into a Nazi, the more obviously he's Jewish. The more his yeah. argumentativeness, his intellectuality, his interest in ideas—they're giving him away, even as he's trying to hide things. Um, I thought that was funny. The truth of the matter is, if I had really, if I'd known how to make a comedy and I'd really been serious about it, I would have had a different. I would have made a different movie. The movie from its music on is and uh, which i love is doesn't doesn't sell itself as a comedy it, it sells it you know we were <laughs> well i mean it's sort of like it's sort of like danny your po- the film yeah. is posturing that it's very serious but behind it it's revealing right. when you when you really look at it it's revealing so much comedy and i i, I kind of after you told me that and i applied that to watching the film I got so much more out of it. I have to say there are so many scenes that are hilarious when you are given license 
to yes. see them as yes. fun. The scene right. when the, I, I, I plan to go through bit by bit, but I'll just say the scene where the the skinheads come in to the Jewish, to the kosher deli and are having that debate. Yeah. In another, like that's all, that's just, it's curb your enthusiasm adjacent. Like there, there are several scenes right. in this film right. that feel like they could be in a curb your enthusiasm in the sense of, oh, you have these, the, I mean, the kind of weird debate they're having, the, the way they're picking on them about their kosherness. And it's ugly and it's terrible. But right, at the right. same time, because Danny's there being the Jewish guy who's instigating it, there is something very Larry David about the way he goes about doing this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys know what you want? We sure do. <laughs> Could I get a, a ham and cheese? A white? We don't serve ham. We don't serve cheese. Well, they serve white. What the Seven fuck? Grains. What the fuck do you serve? Well, that's why you have the menus. Kyle, roast beef with Swiss. We don't serve cheese. What's wrong with cheese? This is a kosher restaurant, all right? We don't serve meat with dairy. What about with chicken? Chicken's <laughs> meat. It says in the Bible, you don't see the kid in its mother's milk, but chickens don't give milk. All right, you guys want cheese that badly. There's a pizza place right next door. You can go there. Okay. It's stupid, though, right? I mean, admit that it's stupid. Do you milk a chicken? <laughs> <laughs> no. I want to admit it's stupid. You can have chicken with eggs, but you can't have it with milk? Why is that? Steve. Uh -oh. Steve. Maybe Steve can explain it. Hi, Steve. Steve. Bring in the eight. Steve, go over here. You can explain this to us. Stevie boy. Stevie got a stick. No, no, no. Let's ask him. Hey. Got a problem here? We yeah. sure fucking do, bitch. We don't understand why you can't have chicken with milk. It doesn't make sense. Religion's not about making sense. It's about the incomprehensible, Steve. Not the idiotic. You, you got you, There's no way in which we can give Ryan sufficient credit for what he does in his performance. And, and one of the things he does is he sells the funniness, even without disrupting the surface so much that the drama doesn't play. But you used a word a minute ago that I think is, is absolutely the right word. It was posturing. So much of what he does is posturing. He's striking a pose. Because uh, let's see what it looks like if I do this. Let's see what it looks like if I say that and pretend to be this way. There's a, there's a play. There's a sense of play. And um, he's very second degree in a certain way. And, and, and because he doesn't know how to be first degree. Because first degree is insufficient to him. First degree means I'm this or I'm that. And I can't do that. I just, that's not, that, doesn't get me, that doesn't get me going. All that gets me going is second degree. And, and there's something about things being postured and things being second. It's play. You know, it's the thing. A play is a play because people are playing. And um, yes, I think once you, once, you, once you know you can laugh. Lior and I sat in the screenings. Well, it was my wife. Um, at Sundance. And we laughed more even than we wanted to because we were just trying to give the audience the license to laugh. This is this you can see this is funny. Now, comedy is hard, <laughs> as they always say. And and I don't think I began to have the chops to do I mean I don't know, would would Roman Polanski have been able to do this? I, I don't know who would have been able it's too broad for Mel Brooks would have been too broad for it. Polanski has a sense of irony 
that, I mean, he's able to make the most incredible things funny um, because he's making them ironically funny. They're not, they're not ha-ha funny. So that was what I was going for. You know, you and I had a brief conversation on the phone about, or an email, I mean, about comedies that people don't know are comedies. Um, and the three that came to mind have something very striking in common. And the three that came to mind were Manchurian Candidate, the mm-hmm. 1962 version, uh, Winter Kills. We're, 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 we're just about to record Winter Kills. That's fantastic. And, and Prizzy's Honor. Well, they all have one thing very strikingly in common. They're all by Richard oh. Condon. Um, they're all from novels by Richard Condon, I mean. Uh, and, and, and there's something in the sensibility well, and, and Manchurian Kennedy is not only by, written from a novel by Richard Condon, but it was written, the screenplay is by one of the great comedy writers of his time, George Axelrod. It was written by a comedy writer, and whoever had the genius to hire George Axelrod to do that, whether it was um, Sinatra or Frankenheimer or who, I don't know, but wow, was that smart. And there are so many funny things in that movie. Um, that's, a, that's, a, that's a form, the hidden comedy is something I'm very fond of. And and I would love to, if I, I'm not going to make any more movies, but if I were to make more movies, I'd like to make hidden comedies. Back up there for a second, sir. Well, how can you say this for sure? You really yes. are not going to make, have you have you sworn them off? I, 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 came, I came to a conclusion after I made noise that I was, and, I'm, and I, I had great authority confirming this position. I'm a better writer than I am a, uh, a director. And I was never going to, and I, I could get to be a better director than I have been, but I was never going to be as good a director. I'm never, I would never be as good a director as I am a writer. And so my focus is on writing and I want to do what I can do well. And there are things other people can do better than I can. And but nobody can write my stuff better than I can write it. Um, and I don't want to, I, I'm not a young man anymore. And I want to, I want to spend my time in the most useful way. Yeah, so I don't want to make, I don't want to direct anything. I mean, look, if I got into a certain situation, maybe I would direct something, but I, I'm, I get it. I'm not I get looking it. for You've, that. I mean, I'm, I actually, I had a, I, I wanted to see Noise before we talked and I downloaded a film called Noise that turned out to be a film from 2007. No, it was the wrong one. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, but I just, I, yeah. I, I, I just ordered the, I really want to see the, I really want to see this film. And actually, there, it, there is a, an, uh, there's a connection between The Believer and Tim Robbins' film, Bob Roberts, and Tim is in your film, Noise, mm, in mm. that both films, mm-hmm. you could grab segments of the film and show them to someone, and they would be compelling arguments in a way that you probably wouldn't want as a filmmaker. Uh, Tim Robbins famously or somewhat famously never put out the soundtrack of Bob Roberts because he was afraid that those songs would be repurposed by actual right-wing fascists and used. And mm. it's mm. one of the things, I'm, so mm. we, we always post clips from the film, the films we cover on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I want to take some of Gosling's mm-hmm. speeches, but I'm also afraid mm-hmm. that they will be seen as actual, you know, genuine anti-Semitic attacks as opposed to as the satire that they are. 
You mean the, the part the way in with the ways in which they're funny and self subverting will be hidden. Will, if you take will, will a one minute clip of him talking about why it's necessary to kill Jews. How many of you consider yourself anti Semites? Good. Actually, the terms have been imprecise, seeing as Jews are only technically one of the Semitic peoples. But for our purposes, we'll say that an anti Semite is someone that hates or is against Jews. Why do we hate them? Let me put it this way. Do we hate them because they push their way in where they don't belong? Or do we hate them because they're clannish and they keep to themselves? Because they're tight with money or because they flash it around? Because they're Bolsheviks or because they're capitalists? Because they have the highest IQs or because they have the most active sex lives? You want to know the real reason why we hate them? Because we hate them. Because they exist. Because it's an axiom of civilization that just as man longs for woman, loves his children, and fears death, he hates Jews. There's no reason. And if there were, some smart-ass kike would try and come up with an argument, try and prove us wrong, which would only make us hate him even more. And really, we have all the reasons we need in three simple letters. J-E-W. Jew. You say it a million times, it's the only word that never loses its meaning. Jew. Jew, 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 Jew. That could be taken out of context. Right. It could be misused. And I'm kind of That's curious, right. is that, have you thought about that? And yeah, do you have any comment on that? The film's made in 2000 when things seemed incredibly safe. If I were going to do the film again today, would I have the courage to have him say those things? I don't know. Um, I think the speech he makes, the last one he makes, where he says, uh, why do we hate the Jews? You know, do we hate them because they're um, international bankers mm-hmm. or because they're communists? Where, where it's so obvious, where the contradiction is so obvious, not that the, the, the basic anti-Semite is going to, even he will, 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 will understand even that. But that one I feel safer about. The one where he's saying, let's, you know, but he makes his kill Barbara Streisand. Everybody, even the Nazis mm-hmm. laugh. It seems like a joke. Because he doesn't know who to kill. They don't know who to kill. Who do you want to kill? What good would it do to kill a Jew? Um, and, 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 and of course, he doesn't have any. He has no intention of killing anybody. It's only Glenn Fitzgerald, uh, you know, Drake, who go out there and, and do what kill he you. would do. Kill me. Not- That's right. You cast yourself as the as the sacrificial lamb in this film. Do you, was that intentional? It was. It was sure. It was sort of intentional. It was also that I had a SAG card and and I could, and we could hire me and not have to pay me, or I could give my money back, and and that's so I was a cheap hire. Um, but yes, I liked being killed. I didn't mind that. Uh, there I am, twenty twenty one years ago. I uh, see myself looking younger. Um, yeah, that was it was it was a goof. And Ryan said to me, you know, when you, I remember when I was doing that scene, Ryan said to me, if you want to be powerful, take long strides. That's, that's smart. <laughs> see, the, 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 the way the way the way a real actor, the things they know are so specific, so concrete. Um, it's just fantastic. I mean, I love it. Actors and writers have a lot in common. They're the opposite of each other, but they're they're by being the opposite of each other, they've got mm-hmm. a lot in common. You know, we do we do in a private way the way what they do in a pop in a performative way. More paradox. 
Well, we both we both we both flip out, but in in, total, in totally different situations, in totally different circumstances. Let it let her. I shouldn't say flip out. We let ourselves go. Yeah. Let's talk about the relationship between Gosling's character and the Summer Phoenix character. I feel like that's mm-hmm. probably the most interesting relationship. It's definitely the most interesting relationship in the film, other than Gosling's relationship to Judaism and God and right, Hitler. Right, right. It starts off as a, a relationship where she asks him to beat her up in a sexual sense. Mm-hmm. And then mm-hmm, mm-hmm. leads to him teaching her Hebrew and right. basically teaching her how to be a Jew. So going from and right, right. I, I don't know. Well, I'm curious. How do you see the relationship between the BDSM relationship and the teacher student relationship in the film? I, I think that, um, you know, you, you. I think Summer's not last scene, but the last scene with any substance, with real substance in it, is the scene they have just before mm-hmm. he goes off to die. And and she's talking about submitting. And she's talking about su- submission as a religious idea. And make no graven image of the Lord or the form of any figure or of man or woman or anything that looks like anything. Because he's not like anything. Not only can you not see him or hear him, but you can't even think about him. I mean, what's the difference between that and him not existing at all? There's no difference. Christianity's silly, but at least there's something to believe in. Or not believe. I mean, Judaism, there's nothing. Nothing but nothingness. Judaism's not really about belief. It's about doing things. Keeping the Sabbath, lighting candles, visiting the sick. And belief follows? Nothing follows. Because you don't do it because it's smart. Or it's stupid. And you don't do it because you get saved. Because nobody gets saved. You just... Do it because the Torah tells you to and you submit to the Torah. That is fucked. Don't swear in front of it, okay? Why should I submit? You shouldn't. You think I should just because there's no reason? I think you shouldn't. I mean, Judaism doesn't even need a God. You have the Torah. That's your fucking God. The book's closed. I think your Hebrew's getting real good. I told you I was good at this. You also have nothing else to do all day, so. What are you saying? I learned it better and faster than you did? Maybe it's because I'm smarter. You think that's funny? Think Jews are the only smart ones? Think I'm Jewish? That's all you ever talk about. Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. The only people that ever talk about it that much are Jews. Nazis talk about it all the time. Do they? Real ones. Hitler and Goebbels, they talked about it incessantly. Oh, is that why you became a Nazi? To talk about Jews incessantly? Do you want to punch in the mouth? Okay. 
Let's light candles on Friday. Say the Kaddish. Kaddish is a prayer for the dead. Kiddish. Say the Kiddish. Light candles. Come on. We could shave my head, fuck through a sheet, all that stuff. Let's just try it. I think that her her wish to be beaten up at the beginning, which was just an idea that came to me. I just thought, she says, hit me. You know, I don't, it's not like I sat there and worked out her character and then said, oh, therefore she would say. I just heard her say, hit me, hurt me, hurt me, because I want to feel something. Hurt me because that's the way I'll know that what I'm feeling is real and, and I will really feel it. That that leads inevitably or not inevitably, but naturally, if not, if I couldn't take you through each step to the idea that she understands that she wants to submit to God. She wants to submit to something greater than herself. She and, and, and the first thing she can submit to is this young, you know, well-cut guy. And, and the last thing she can submit to is a God she doesn't know whether she believes in or not, but that she can submit to. She can, she can affirm the idea of submission. So that was the progress that very quickly revealed itself to me. Um, there was something in summer that made me feel all that. I met her at a dinner party and, and just I was captivated by her. Um, and I thought there's something, you know, there, there's something in this person. There's, you know, you look for that thing inside somebody that fascinates you. Um, and, you and, and, and you think, I don't know what this is. And I maybe don't know how to use it, but I want that. I want that feeling. I want that person. I want that presence in my composition here. And I just knew from the minute I, I met her, she'd never, she had never, she'd never consumed an animal product. Not cheese, not egg, much less animal flesh. But there she was at this dinner party, washing dishes while smoking a cigarette and drinking. And there was just something about that, that, again, contradiction, or well, seeming cause, what seemed to me contradiction, um, something I didn't understand, some intensity that was original to my, to my experience, um, that I was fascinated by, and just the way she looked, and the present, the, this, this thing inside of her. I mean, when she, in that last scene with him, or maybe it's not the last scene, maybe it's a scene before that, where a scene in which the camera is on her a great deal as he talks, and all she does is listen. And she's so good, you know, this is what actors say, the great skill of acting is listening. She's so good at listening. She listens, you can feel her listening. You can feel her, you can watch her eyes follow him as he's speaking, even though he's off camera. And, and, and the way in which that makes things real, that was part of what was inside Summer that I wanted. Um, and, and so the rest of it, I mean, I think that by the time I wrote the line, Hurt Me, I was already cast, I, I'd already in, in my head cast Summer. I didn't necessarily, I hadn't mentioned it to her, but, but uh, um, that's what I was thinking. Uh, so when do you think she figures out that Danny's Jewish? Because that is one of the ambiguous things in the film. And maybe you don't want to reveal it and maybe you don't know, but it seems like there isn't an exact aha moment. And as a viewer, my feeling is 
I feel like she knows that the second he starts talking about hating Jews in the first scene where he, she sees him, that look she gives him is one of understand of, of deep knowing. That's right. It's a, it, and, and again, again, that, again, that's because that's because when summer does things, you feel you, you don't necessarily know what you're feeling, but there's a weight to it. And when she looks at him in that first scene, She's saying something's going on. I don't know whether she knows this is a Jew pretending to be a, pretending to be a Nazi, or she simply says there's something going on here that is more than what he's what he's telling us. Um, that that I, I, when she actually knows it, I know when by when I know the scene in which it's obvious that she knows it, and that's the scene where he catches her looking at the Torah, and she insists that he mm-hmm. he, he tell her he read it in Hebrew. And she's obviously provoking him, and she knows what it's what's what she knows then. I don't know that there is an aha moment bes- between that first one and that one, but it's happened, and I don't need I don't feel the need, or I didn't feel the need to delineate a specific moment where it clicks. I think those things don't often they sometimes they click, but often it's just at a certain moment. You realize you've known something that you weren't consciously aware of knowing. And I think that I like to think that in the scene where she's naked in front of the door, at least, you know, she's naked in front of the door and he's upset about it. And she sees what the fuck is he? This is this Nazi. What the fuck is he upset about my being in front of the naked in front of the door for? Um, by that point, she knows she she's realized she becomes aware of her knowledge. But where the knowledge actually happens, I think you're fair. it's fair to say it starts in that look you just described in the first scene between them. And then their first scene of dialogue together, there's what I feel like it, it hits on a, a subtle comedic note, that a bell that you keep ringing throughout this whole movie where she says, you're not like the others. And he's like, well, basically I am. <laughs> And I feel like that is that happens throughout the whole movie. Like there's the scene when Teresa Russell tells him that they want to start a a legitimate fascist movement. And they're like, and we want you to do political outreach and fundraising. And you're like, you want to give me the Jew jobs? You want to give me that's what his look is like. I can't. (laughs) It's basically like they don't and they're not even making that leap. But he is throughout the whole film. It feels like, and, and he's saying to her, he's saying to Summer in the line you you cited there, he's saying to her something even more important to him, which is stop thinking of me as special, mm-hmm. stop thinking of me as different, stop thinking of me as the other. I'm like those guys. I'm just like those guys. I know I'm here with you because I'm not just like those guys. I know perfectly well I'm not like those guys, but I'm just like those guys. It's the torture, you know. So much of American filmmaking or American sense of identity is about the guy who knows he's special. This Steve McQueen character, the Clint Eastwood character. I'm not like other men. And there's such a celebration of that that I think what gets lost is the tremendous desire to be like other men. You know, they, 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 they so celebrate you not being like other men that the, that the protest against that seems insincere. Um, but I think for Danny, he can't not, he can't be like other men, but I think he honestly longs to be like other men. When she says you're not like other men, she's saying in some sense, I see you, I see the thing you're hiding. 
even though, of course, we've just seen him in the scene with, you know, the, well, the Nazis where he's not hiding it a bit. He's parading it around. But to parade it around and then be called on having paraded it around is like saying, you gave yourself away again. And, and what you gave away is, yes, you're a Jew. But you also gave away what you're a person, that you're actually a living individual person. And you, you, you want to be that. You insist on being that. Everything about you is inspiring that. And at the same time, when you hear it said, you want to disappear again. Um, there's some weird, I, I don't know what this, I don't know whether this contradiction is, is, is peculiarly American or it's universal or what it is, but it's very strong. It's very, it's very, we never get past it. It's another one of those, you know, I'm back and forth between this and that, that I, you never get past. You, as soon as you're one thing, you want to be the other. As soon as you're an ordinary person, you want to distinguish yourself from the crowd. And as soon as you distinguish yourself, well, you know, there's a wonderful essay. Um, you know the film critic Robert Warshaw? Is that mm, mm, the, 40, 40s, 50s. He wrote a little uh, three, four, five-page essay called The Gangster is Tragic Hero. And he sees the gangster as fundamentally an immigrant. And the immigrant is caught in the masses of the city. He's, he's living in the tenements, let's say. And what he wants to do is he wants to be an individual. He wants to rise above the crowd. And he wants to distinguish himself. And in the gangster film, as soon as he's distinguished himself, that is, as soon as he's separated from others and is alone, you know he's going to be killed. Um, and and <laughs> that's a fundamental contradiction. Either I don't really fully exist and my life is unlivable, or, 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 or I have to, I, I'm not fully existing, or I fully exist and distinguish myself, and then I'm murdered. Those, that, that, that's what you call a tragic dilemma. <laughs> There's no happy answer. Um, why am I on that? Um, because I think Danny feels some of that. I don't want to be special, because once I'm special, my freakiness will show. But my freakiness is myself, and, and I have to be myself. So I'll be freaky. I love that stuff. There's a couple of other, I, I think, really important scenes that I just want to touch on. Uh, the scene where the Nazis, the skinheads, mm -hmm. have to get sensitivity training with the Holocaust <laughs> survivors. Mm -hmm. right. Wow. What that's a scene. A, that's an interesting scene. That's a scene that was conceived to be somewhat different. That scene was really not so much rewritten as reconceived by the other producer on the film, uh, a woman named uh, Susan Hoffman. And Susan Hoffman saw that, that pa the pages for that script and said to me in her, her sibilic way, she says, that's a scene that Danny has to lose. That's a scene that the survivors have to win over Danny. This is not a scene where he gets to run his stuff. And the minute she said that, and the minute I knew that I had to write it in those terms, and the minute I, the woman who, who delivers those lines? She was right, and it was great. It made all the difference, and that would have been that would that scene was conceived by Susan, and and works because of Susan's conception. Um, she's a very very capable person, a uh, really brilliant person. Um, that scene was great, and the people who played in it were great, and uh, it just works, and it's got a different tone. It's a little bit different from everything else, and. I, yeah, I, I like that scene, and I and I and I and I feel like I was that was a gift from. Yeah, from that was a, it was a great one. It does lead to a little bit of like, 
it's one of those the 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 problems with doing a podcast like this is yeah. So you watch a movie once mm-hmm. and you just like it or you have your feelings about it. Maybe you watch it again, again for pleasure. But then when you're watching it and taking notes, yeah, you notice things, little inconsistencies. Ah, uh, there's inconsistencies there. So like they got, they had to either get go do time in prison or do time in jail or take the sensitivity training. And then Danny walks out of the sensitivity training. Oh, why doesn't he then go to jail? Yeah, it's fine. I just it doesn't matter. No, I it's just a good wanted... question. It's a good question. It's uh, maybe he should, yeah. If I thought about that, maybe I said, I guess, have I done enough time? Have I done enough time here to get out of jail? Yeah, he did. A, he did show up for the thing, and he, he did, did engage with those people. But that's good. You're right. Uh, I didn't think of that. It doesn't matter. The film again. It's it's one. not the kind of thing you think about unless you are tearing a film apart. Not tearing it apart in the sense of trashing it but tearing it apart so that you can look at the constituent pieces so yeah i just the the there's another part that i wanted to talk about which is the relationship with summer phoenix and billy zane's character and Mm -hmm. the ryan gosling character Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. there's one one scene that again i don't know if i would have seen as funny and if you hadn't given me license to see it as funny but when he's talking with when Ryan Gosling is talking with Summer Phoenix about uh, her relationship with the Billy Zane character, and she's and he says uh, he basically talks about how big his dick is, mm-hmm. and she's like, "Well, yours has a tragic dimension to it." <laughs> and I know she's talking about the lovemaking, yeah, but I also right. couldn't help but think that there's some. <laughs> Subtle, oh, you mean uh, subtle. He's, he's tragically small, or something like or that. Or just you know that his he's circumcised and Deformed. and oh, Billy Zane isn't. He's got a big uncircumcised dick, and he's got this oh, tragic. I, dick. You know, I didn't. I the, the tragic dimension was more. I guess it was a, it was a it was a comment on lovemaking style right. on on the you know the meaning. I didn't think of it in terms of that, but um, I did think that was a funny. I did think when she said that was a funny line. I did mean that. It is a funny get line. A smile. And I don't expect everyone to see it the way I see it, but there was something again that I guess once you open up that comedy box, then that uh, there's a different yeah. part of your brain that kicks in. And I also wonder yeah. if yes. I um if if it's only possible to watch this film as a comedy, if you are a Jew or a Nazi. I feel like if you're not, if you don't relate to one of those things. Like I would have a hard time watching a film. I feel like I'd have a harder time watching this film and seeing it as a comedy if it was dealing with, you know, with racism. If it was, if it was dealing with a a community that I didn't feel licensed to be complex about. Oh, I think you, you know. I, when I was making this film, I, I thought, you know, you could do a black version of this. You could do a gay version of this. You could do. There are a lot of versions you could do. I think they could be funny, and I think you. And I think if a black person wanted to make this film. Um, in fact, maybe black people have made this film, but if they wanted to, they could, it would be hilarious. It could be hilarious. I don't think, I don't think, and I think you, a white person and me, a white person could get it that you might have to be a little broader. I mean, maybe the things is, maybe it's, I mean, there's so many subtle jokes in this film that people don't, that even Jews aren't getting, but, um, but I think that, yes, I do think you could laugh at a black person. If the black version was done by somebody, you know, who, who really wanted to make you, I mean, Richard Pryor mm-hmm. could have made a version of this. Um, and if there's somebody who knew how to do that, if Donald Glover wanted to make 
a version of that, um, it would, I bet it would work. Mm -hmm. What are some of the jokes that you feel like nobody gets in this film? Um, God, there was just one in my head that I forgot. Uh, oh, well, <laughs> this is one. I got to say, the, the, the audience laughed the most for this was at the Jerusalem Film Festival. Mm -hmm. One of the jokes that they got, when Danny reads from the Torah, right? He, when Summer makes him read from the Torah, mm -hmm. he reads from a passage that's, I mean, it took me forever to figure out what passage to use. But he reads from a famous passage in which um, Abraham is first hearing the call of God. And God says to him, go down, leave your, leave your family, Leave your, 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 the, the people you know, leave the country of your birth and go to another place I will show you. Uh, this, is the, this is the beginning of the Jewish people. Mm -hmm. the first lines of the Jewish people. And somebody at the Jerusalem Film Festival said to me, were you thinking about what that meant? That is, were you thinking that this guy, Danny, is reading this as a call to himself? to leave his people and his family and go off to another place that God will show him. Well, of course I was. That was why I used that passage. But that's a little joke. That's saying that the call of Judaism is also the call. It can also be read as the call to the Nazi. Um, that's a, that's a, you know, a deep joke. There's another place. There's another place where he runs into his old friends from yeshiva yeah. And one of them says, you know, I'm a doctoral program at JTS. Well, JT, and Danny sneers, JTS. He says, JTS. Everybody in Jerusalem laughed at that. <laughs> because, because the joke is, yes, I'm a Nazi, but when I see an Orthodox kid is going into a, a, a doctoral program at a conservative uh, seminary, I think he's full of shit. I'm, <laughs> I'm a serious, well, if I were to be a Jew, I would be a serious Jew for whom that would be completely insufficient. I'm a Nazi, but when I go back to thinking about things in a Jewish perspective, I'm still an Orthodox kid. That's another inside joke that most people don't get, but it doesn't matter. You know, it's, you get them even if you don't get them. You, you, get, you, you, know, you understand you're in a world of this kind of irony and contradiction, even if you don't pick up. And we do this in all the movies we watch. There are all sorts of things we don't get that are inside remarks for the people making the thing, and, and you, you, but you get the flavor of it. You have to trust. Yeah. The, the, the makers have to trust that they'll get the play. Uh, and that leads to what I, I find, again, after rewatching it many times now, one of my favorite scenes is the scene where he first goes to Temple after meeting his friends and they invite him, which is sort of surprising mm -hmm. to me. It's, it's, it's surprising to me that he goes there and then they have this little debate that then touches on Israel and it has that that great right, actress right, Tova right. Tova Felcher. Oh, she's she's in this film so little, but just like the Judah character and, 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 so uh, much and uncredited. Yeah, total charisma. Yeah. Total charisma. Just that look that she gives him and she's yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like I know yeah. you. <laughs> so, uh and then and that I guess that's maybe I guess that's the first time that we really see him engaging with other Jews. I mean, there's the scene with his sister and there's a scene with his father. Right, right. But Well, those, yeah, but those are not, those are as, as sister and father more than as yeah. Jews. But yes, they but are. But that scene, 
Oh, I just, I mean, maybe it's good. Maybe it is the sort of the authority that Judah, who's behind the scenes a lot, brings to it when he finally emerges on in the film. But there's something about just that fractious interaction with little asides and the, the debate about Israel and Tova's look and statements to him. There's something about that scene that's kind of perfect. I'm actually thinking I might use that. We always use a clip. Uh, from the mm-hmm. film to introduce the film, mm-hmm. I'm thinking mm-hmm. I might grab that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's one of my favorite scenes. It's one of my favorite scenes in the whole film, and and among the reasons it's my favorite, one of my favorites is that I really had an idea about how to direct it, and the idea was really based on um, the fast talking comedies of the 30s and 40s, and and especially his Girl Friday. And I tried to get, and I rehearsed the actors to deliver their lines on top of each other so fast that you really, and because what they're talking about is relatively complicated, that you really couldn't follow, I mean, unless you're really deep into it, you couldn't really follow it. And it, it was like this profusion of words and this profusion of almost like percussive notes um, or percussive beats. And, and that that produced a feeling, a fast, speedy, argumentative, and to my mind, very Jewish feeling that I thought was effective and the actors did a great job. And we just, we, tr- we rehearsed it the way Hawks used to have his actors step on each other's, just right, the next line comes right on top of the first line. And so that the, the stuff lands, the, the meanings land after the line is already passed. And, uh, and that too is comic. Um, and, I, and it came out, I like the way it came out. And Tova was fantastic in it. Now, when we were initially speaking, you suggested that I check out the works of a Jewish philosopher named Yeshayahu Leibowitz. Right. And I read a little bit of what you sent Mm -hmm. me, but I'd love for you to maybe talk about, well, why you think that this, uh, this philosopher is an important touchstone for people who are interested in finding about the origins of the believer. Well, I think it's, and, and I think it's an interesting touchstone because it's the, 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 the Leibowitz whom I read probably in my forties, I guess. Um, I, I grew up in form. I, I didn't, you know, I was bar mitzvah, but in a very rinky ding fashion and truthfully, 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 I, I didn't know what Judaism was. And, and even after I met my wife, I didn't, I, I, I understood how it worked, but I didn't know what it was. And that, that was really an insight, but I didn't understand what that insight meant. And, and Leibowitz explained to me what Judaism is as a religion, which is, it's, and it's something that a lot of Jews will say to you. They say, they'll say to you, it's not a religion of belief. It's a religion of practice. It's not important what you think. It's important what you do. You light the candles, you say the prayers, you visit the sick, you comfort the bereaved, you go to the holidays, you keep kosher, you keep the Sabbath, blah, 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 blah. And go think whatever you like. (laughs) Um, And when I read Leibowitz, I got it. I said, oh my God, this is is the thing I haven't understood all my life. And, And I think that one of the things Leibowitz says, and I think this is a bit there in, in Summers, we were talking a minute ago about Summers' um, discussion of submission late in the film and her, her, her obvious attraction to, to the idea of submitting. And, and Leibowitz keeps using this phrase, and it's not his phrase, but he takes it, it's the, the, that he accepts the yoke of Torah, the yoke of Torah. The yoke of Torah, which I, I accept the yoke of Torah, and therefore I will 
fulfill my duties. I will do all those things that I'm, I will follow all the commandments, not the ten not just the Ten Commandments, but the hundreds of commandments that would guide a religious Jew through the day and through, their, through his life, her life. Um, and, and the submission to that is not because I think it's going to do me any good. Yeah, I actually think it might do me some good. I think it might bring me close to God. But I don't submit to it for that reason. I don't submit to it because of the benefits to myself. I submit to it because I'm commanded to do that by the Torah, by the writings in the Torah. And, and I accept that commandment. I, I bow down. I submit to this commandment or these commandments. Um, and I'm going to do them. And, and I feel like that's where Summer, Summer's character um, gets to in, in, the, uh, in the film. And in a certain sense, that's what's behind the Judaism that Danny is practicing and, and not practicing and rebelling against. And, and there's this sense that, you know, you can, you can, you, you're not going to, you know, Judaism is very clear about it. I mean, the book of Job is clear about it, but I think it's clear from every, once you see <laughs> the book of Job is the key to understanding what's going on. It, it's, it's, this is, it's all this stuff. You don't fucking get it. You don't know why it's being done. Nobody's going to explain it to you because you're not capable of understanding it. It's your job to do it or not do it. To, to make up your mind. But it doesn't matter to me what you do. That's just your choice for yourself. Uh, matters to God, but I, you know, that, and, and, and there's something about the harshness of that, the pragmatism of it, the lack of conversation that it requires, although people talk about it forever, that's, I find just incredibly powerful and incredibly bracing and uh, invigorating. Not that I am a halakhic Jew by any stretch of the imagination, but that I feel like that's the form of Judaism that is out there in the religion, calling to them, repelling them, drawing them to it, pushing them away, sitting there by itself, in in certain sense indifferent to the choices they make vis-a-vis it. Um, that's the truth behind everything else in in the world of the film. Um, gosh, I, maybe I believe that. I don't know. <laughs> well, it certainly seems it resonates with something that's running through Danny's character, which is he wants to be the one who does stuff, not the one who talks about stuff. <laughs> he's like, he, there's a point where he's like, I, all I do is talk about killing Jews. I need to kill a Jew. And of course, the only Jew in the film that he kills is himself. Exactly. Which is when he's talking in his final speech that gets him kicked out of right. the, the Zamp world. Right. Uh, when he talks about that we need to love Jews because the Jew wants to be hated. And the only <laughs> way we can truly destroy the Jew is to love him. Jesus knew this perfectly. And in the end, he does. He is. Oh, uh, he is. He's kind of a Christ figure in a strange yeah, 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 way. Yeah. And. I don't know. I get it's one of those film. It's one of those things that I don't like. I'm I, I'm trying to get to a question, but there really isn't a question. I'm just sharing this yeah, this right, reflection right, 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 that you right. really nailed it in some very subtle, some ways that are subtle until it's pointed out to you, and then again you hear that bell ringing through this film louder and louder. You know, I, I think in you know in in, in doing a work of art, 
you you buy into or you 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 create or you or you accept a metaphor and that metaphor has implications far beyond anything you can imagine about it and sometimes you're lucky with your metaphor sometimes you've got a metaphor that that really has a tremendous number of changes that can be wrong off of it and that goes a lot of places that you would never take it by yourself you know uh, you know the filmmaker Chantal Ackerman no longer with, no oh, longer yes. with us. Yeah, Chantal was a friend of mine, and um, when I was making the Believer, and was distraught at how poor I was at doing it, she said something that's. She said, "Every scene should be about one thing. It'll be about other things, but you don't worry about them. You make it about that one thing, and let the other things, as it were, fall where they may." And I think that that's a, that's that is a great piece of advice for the scene, but it's also a great piece of advice for work. You you there's something you affirm and set out in pursuit of, and there are all sorts of meanings and suggestions and intimations and so forth that come from that. You don't have to know them; other people will find them, and that that's fine. Just do what you can do and let the the thing live on its own beyond your efforts. Ah. Uh. I hope that's relevant to what you were asking me, but I don't know. Well, you've certainly done it. And in in a way, the fact that Ryan Gosling, I mean, you picked him, but at the same time, there is a sort of a kismet, synchronicity, faded quality to it, which this film is always going to be of interest to people who care about film because of who ended up yeah, at the center yeah, of this right. film and what he did. But even even if he had given half as great a performance, I feel like you, you, you're you this little contradictory, difficult film would have, like you said, would have remained very small. But in a way, like if we are, if we're to, if we're to believe that there is, if we're to take on the idea that God, that there is a God's will being expressed, then this film was oddly blessed. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I think that's, I think you're absolutely right. And I think, you know, apropos of that, a friend of mine, Larry Gross, pointed this out. He said, part of that is that Ryan himself came from a very difficult, demanding outsider religion. Um, you know, he was a Mormon and and he was a uh, practicing Mormon, at the, a fairly strictly practicing Mormon at the time that he was in the film. And I think he brought to it from that an understanding that somebody from somebody who didn't have a religion and especially didn't have such a difficult, tricky religion might not have had. I mean, it shaped him along with all the other things that shaped him. Um, so I'm grateful to that. I'm grateful to that. So so many things. And just because on the on the show we we've talked a fair amount about the idea that a lot of times Jewish characters are not cast to be played by Jewish actors. Mm -hmm. Sometimes effectively, and sometimes you know right, not effectively. Right. And I feel like this is definitely effective. But I also feel like there. It, I want to give you an opportunity to maybe talk about that a little bit. We call it Jew facing on the show. It, what does it mean? Uh, what it means? It's like black facing, oh, like blackface, but Jew face where, you know, and, and a lot of times I feel like it's particularly for Jewish women, mm -hmm. but you know, Jewish men as well. Now, not necessarily trying having to defend this because I feel like the casting in this is fantastic, but is that something you have any thoughts about? I had thought 
at a certain point in the process that only a Jew could play this part. And I saw a lot of Jewish actors and none of them seemed right to me. Then I saw a, a non-Jewish actor who seemed better than right. And so I used him. And I think when you're making a movie, what you want is that which works. I think there are actors, uh, there are two actors who come to mind who play Jews phenomenally well without being, without Jew face. Oh, I think we call Jews. One of them is Alec Baldwin, who's played Jews over and over again and obviously knows Jews and just fucking kills it for my money. Um, and, you know, about whom you might say he's more Jewish than, than the others than the Jewish ones. The other uh -huh. one who doesn't do it so much anymore, but who I think was a natural was James Wood, Woods. And um, they just could do it. They just got it. Or they were something that could read as Jewish. Uh, who's a, you know, what's his name? Who, who are the, who, 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 who's Jew facing? Let's be candid here. You mean you're talking about a, gent you're about a Gentile who plays a Jew as if, in a kind of cliched, uh, caricatured way. I'm thinking of like, well, for me, I love this show, but I'm, but I'm really annoyed by it. In the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, uh, is that you have like Tony Shalhoub is, he's great in it, but he's not Jewish. Rachel Brosnahan isn't Jewish. Uh, but Tony Shalhoub can play. I, I, I haven't oh, seen the show. He's I fantastic. That. He reminds me of but my Tony grandfather Shalhoub, so much. He can play. He can yeah. play Jewish, right? I mean, Tony Shalhoub can play anyone. Really? Yeah, he can play anyone. He's a great actor. He's really, really a great actor. But he also is Middle Eastern, and he can play that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I, I never have a trouble with. I've never had trouble with him. You know what's his name came over here, uh, Joseph Cedar, and made Norman, and every single American Jew is played by a Gentile, right? Steve Buscemi plays a Jew. Uh, um, Richard Gere plays a Jew. All all the American Jews in that film, as I recall are played by Gentiles. Well, that's, that's just Joseph Cedar making a comment on how Jewish he finds American Jews. Um, but no, I don't, I don't care. I don't care who, whether these people are Jewish or not. I don't, it doesn't mean anything mm -hmm. to me. I want to see people who I believe and who work in the roles. You know, the guy who played, you've you seen Stissel, right? No, no, I haven't. You haven't seen Stissel? No, I must. Now I when it's so good, it's so good. You know what I think? I was watching the third season some months ago, and I thought this is the most Dostoevsky show on television. This is this is the show that captures captures a Dostoevsky flavor like no other show I've ever seen. Um, and it would be easy to imagine. I mean, they're all Israelis, so I assume they're they're not Gentiles playing Jews. But if you told me that the young male lead of that film was a Gentile. And I mean, he's not totally, doesn't look totally different from Ryan. Um, I would say, okay, I don't care. He makes it work. That's all you care about is they make it work. They make it, they, you, you want to watch them. Do I want to watch them? Do I believe they are who they tell me they are? That's all I care about. If you're talking about characters of Jews who are cliches of Judaism, well, I don't want to see that cliche of anything in anybody, unless somebody can do it, do the cliche, and then give it to something beyond the cliche. Then, then, then that's okay. The type plus, that's all right. But um, I guess there are times, when have I seen that? When I've seen, it seems like I have seen it in Jewish women. When people playing Jewish women, and they're, they're, they're just kvetchy mm -hmm. and 
can and, and manipulative and i i think ugh, i don't want to watch this but no i don't think this i don't think it matters who plays what i i i don't care about look if you had a white guy playing a black person you'd never get away with it today but they're black well, they're white people who can play black people i'm sure they're white people who could play a black person and i i would be happy to see such a thing if it were well done i'm not i, I don't believe in the appropriations problem i don't that doesn't mean anything to me. Um, I don't. I don't think there's. I think we're entitled to appropriate anything we want. Um, there. Now. Now I put my foot in. Spoken it. like a true Jewish Nazi. <laughs> okay. So yeah. I feel like we've we've given uh, we've given like, some good attention to this film. Clearly, I love it. I'm glad you spoke on that. Now, just a little bit about the rest of your career. I haven't seen Noise yet. I'm looking forward to seeing that. In looking at this, I also saw that you wrote another film that I feel like we need to do on The World is Wrong sometime, which is Deep Cover. Co-wrote. Yeah, right. Co-wrote. Right. Are there any other works of yours that you that you feel particularly proud of that you'd like to direct people's attention to? The works of mine that I would like to direct people's attention to are probably... Well, I, I worked on the, uh, the only season of um, K Street, which was really a Steven Soderbergh creation but i think it's a fascinating show and i i'm listed as the chief writer on a show that was unscripted so whether that's a credit or not i don't know but <laughs> but i think the show is, is is fascinating and really worth watching um most of the rest of the stuff i'm most proud of is is fiction so uh is this is the stuff you've written that it yeah. hasn't been made into films or, or that's actually, you know, short stories or uh, that novels that um, that I am working on or I have published or I have been unable to publish, but that seem to me the best things I've written. Cool. Is there anything about the film that you feel like we haven't touched on that you think is important? I'm sure I'm sure there is, but I can't think of it now. You've asked great questions and it's been fun talking about it. Um I'm sure there's tons, you know, tons of stuff to talk about, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty talked out at this point. Radio 8 Andras here. When I'm not co-hosting the World is Wrong podcast, I'm hosting and producing the Radio 8 Ball podcast, where we answer questions by picking songs at random, like picking musical tarot cards. We've hosted musical divinations for people like John C. Riley, Patricia Arquette, Tignataro, and Fred Armisen, and hosted over 200 songwriters providing the randomly chosen answers from Inara George and Dan Byrne to Mose Allison and Alan Toussaint. That's Radio 8 Ball, all one word. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and download our app from the iTunes App Store. This is Kate Zazowski. And this is Caitlin Reese. And we are straight guys. Okay, no, we're not. We're actually queer women. Fooled ya. Literally no one believed we were actually straight guys. Your mom did. That doesn't even make sense. Caitlin, Join us as we roast straight and gay culture, answer sex and dating questions from straight folks, and make the news gay. We also roast each other. It's pretty easy. Caitlin kind of sucks. And we have a lot of funny queer special guests. So listen to Straight Guys, a podcast that's anything but on Paperhouse Network. Dear listener, if you are just discovering our podcast, you can find all of our episodes on our website at theworldiswrongpodcast.com. 
You can also write to us at contact at theworldiswrongpodcast.com or follow us on Instagram at theworldiswrongpodcast. And now, back to the show. Well, Brian, uh, sorry yeah. you couldn't be there for that, but I feel like you were. I felt I feel your spirit <laughs> on my shoulder while I'm doing these. I uh, hope you approve. Yeah, no, that was a great interview. That and like he definitely made a convincing argument for this movie being a comedy. It's I'm gonna have to watch it again now, just hearing his idea of it being funny. <laughs> it's like because I've seen it now a few times. And uh, I did not think that. So now I have a whole new way of looking at it. And I think it's really cool uh, that he brought up uh, Winter Kills. Because we're about to do that in a few weeks as an episode. Yeah. So, like, that, it's amazing that he <laughs> that he dropped that. just uh, Unprompted. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I dug that he recognized or was happy that we had covered Frank. Uh, yeah, the yeah. Film, the film Frank. That was nice. That I think more and more people, directors, are going to look at the films we've co- we've covered, and and I think they're going to. I think directors. I think we probably speak more to a director's taste, like the kind of films you know. Like as a musician, I know that I'm. There's a lot of my favorite music is by artists who I feel like really didn't get their due. And of course, I still love the Beatles and I love Bruce Springsteen and Frank Sinatra. Just because you're famous and great doesn't mean that you're not good. But I don't have as much, you know, I don't feel like the need to throw my arms around those artists in the same way. (laughs) And I feel like as a director or as someone in the film business, writers, you probably are keenly aware of the great things that don't make it, right? Yeah, I feel that's definitely true. I think it's like because you are of the same group. And and I think also because everybody who's creative has made things that people haven't liked and you get sad about it or that people haven't seen. And so they see that in other things and being like, wait a minute, this movie's good. Why didn't anybody talk about that one? Uh, Just like I'm sure there's a bunch of plumbers out there who are like, why does no one call that plumber up to get their toilet fixed? That's the best one. Who cares if he has bad hair? You should really watch Lodge 49. <laughs> this is the whole oeuvre of Lodge 49. Yes. Yeah, so were there any uh, any other things from the the interview that you wanted to comment upon or just your general thoughts on The Believer? Uh, no, I just, I think that it was just really fun to hear kind of stories about early Ryan Gosling and... Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just it definitely has given me a new point of view of this movie. Just like trying to replay it in my head as a thing that a director thinks is funny. I, I'm I'm excited to revisit because of that. That's sort of the main take from from this interview for me. Well, for the uh, for the Instagram posts for this week, I tried to lean into the scenes that were tinged with comedy. So <laughs> maybe start there. For those of you who are listening, who would like to write into us and give us your comments, your thoughts, your ideas, your appraisals, you know, or, uh, you know, secret code words, whatever, whatever you want to share with us. You can reach us out to us at contact at the world is wrong podcast dot com. You can find us at www dot the world is wrong podcast dot com. You can find us on Instagram at the World is Wrong podcast and on Twitter at World is Wrong Pod. Hey, you know, Brian, we had a we got a 
didn't we get a nice tweet or not a tweet or a text? Didn't someone send you something nice? When people send us nice things that they say about the show, even if it's just personally, I feel like we should share them. Was didn't you get a text? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, yes. Uh, we had a listener uh, who is a, a nice man that I know named Sean Savage. He works for the Academy of Motion Pictures, Arts and Sciences, so he has a trusted opinion in movies. But uh, he said. Uh, I am also a Rules Don't Apply fan, and this is a, a, a referring to our episode we did a year ago uh, for the Rules Don't Apply by Warren Beatty. I'm also a Rules Don't Apply fan, and you fellas covered it admirably. Agree the song should have been nominated, and Beatty should have got a supporting actor nom. Such a great comedic performance, and love when he does the doofus thing. <laughs> I see you've got a Fears episode, but at minimum, the world is wrong about Hero, which we talk about in a bonus episode we did this summer. Love that one beyond all reason. Also loving the wolf episode. So thanks, Sean. Yeah. It's nice to know that people are listening to it. And uh, yeah. So thank you, Sean. Exciting. And thank because I'm, I'm so grateful for that, that I'm going to refrain from making any uh, fierce jokes about your name. Um, something about that name. I just like, I had all this, this Rolodex of bad dad jokes to go along with it. And I just figured rather, you know, why do that to someone who's been so nice to us? So good for you, Sean. Thank you. Thank you. And, uh, and you know, if you, if you are out there and you're thinking, well, gosh, I wish someone was not making fun of my name on the, on the podcast. Well, you can write to us and we'll, we'll treat you even just as just as good as we treat Sean, maybe even better. Uh, but thank you, Sean. Thank you, Brian. Thank you all for for listening. Um, next week on the podcast, we are going to be covering what? Wait, which one is it? State of Grace with your buddies. State Zach of Grace, Carlson. Yes, that's yes. a it's a great episode. This is a yep. movie about a bunch of Irish Nazis. <laughs> no no they're just irish they're irish gangsters and uh, a heck of a, a heck of a film and i think a pretty excellent episode recorded we recorded this one quite a while back so we, we were just fitting it into the production schedule but it was it was great to have your buddy zach carlson on and uh if you if you haven't seen the film go check it out state of grace from 1990 directed by phil joanu Oh, and don't forget that our exploration of this film is far from over, because coming up next in the feed, we've got a conversation with the producer of The Believer, Christopher Roberts. Uh, Chris and I went to high school together, and so we have a great time talking about the film. Not only do we discuss The Believer, but we also get into Welcome to the Dollhouse, on which Chris worked, and several other interesting tributaries. So, if you're subscribed to the podcast, that will be the next one up. And I hope you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed making it. And with that, it falls to me once again to remind you that wherever you are, the world is wrong. And it is probably wrong about you. And he said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a son. the only one he loves. Hey, Good job,
You only killed the ones you love, is that right? What are you doing here? For your an anti-Semite. Did you grow up? It's a skinhead. It's just a style. Avi, there are anti-racist skins. Believe me, Danny's a racist kind. You're fascist, Danny, yes or no? Shh. Thinks the Jews are wimps. What's a fascist? Rest my case. He's a Jewish Nazi. He always was. Well, he's obviously a Zionist Nazi. The Zionists are not Nazis. They're racist. They're militaristic. They act like stormtroopers in the territory. And do you hate them because they're wimps or because they're stormtroopers? They don't have extermination camps. They have Sabra and Shatila. Or do you just hate them? That wasn't genocide. That was the Lebanese killing each other, and the Israelis knew nothing he's about it. He's about the camps. Sharon and Kurds of just to go in there and murder Listen, we don't know that. There's absolutely no proof of that. Have you ever read the New York Times? Yeah, it was a war. People got killed. I want to know why the Jews are always held to a higher standard than everybody else. Because we're the chosen people. Isn't that right, Daniel? Isn't that right? We, uh, listen, read early Zionists on European Jewry. They sound exactly like Goebbels. They sound like you. Look at just how Nazis did everything that Hitler told them. You do everything the Torah tells you, or the Rebbe. It's identical. Stop. 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 We don't want that in here. Don't. You guys take it outside. Hi, I'm Brian. And I'm AJ. And we have a podcast called The Director's Wall. Examining a filmmaker's career, film by film. First up was M. Night Shyamalan, then Francis Ford Coppola. Who's next? Is there anything to this whole auteur theory? Find out on The Director's Wall. Subscribe by Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or your preferred listening platform.